We, we are going to jump into this new thing today, this new uh, teaching series out of the Gospel of Luke. And I'm excited about what the Lord wants to say to us through this. Uh, you know, we, we've been praying for a while. You know, we, we, we just finished Galatians, and, and that was a, I really enjoyed that that series of messages. I don't know about y'all, but I feel like the Lord really renewed my soul in that. That's one of the coolest things about about preaching the word is when you, um, is, is you know, I try not to preach anything unless the Lord's already spoken to me about it. And I love, uh, I love those messages on grace and remembering that it's not by our own striving, but it's, it's, it's by the grace of Jesus that we're saved. And um, that, by the way, just because we finished Galatians doesn't mean we're finished with that theme. A matter of fact, I believe that's a theme that we as followers of Christ need to probably be on uh, forever because we have a tendency to stray away from him in our own striving. And we'll get into, that's actually going to be a little bit of what we talk about today. It's part of the core problem that we have as humanity. But I want to, uh, something that, that the Lord uh, put on my heart with this, the, the, the sermon series that we're going to be embarking on in the Gospel of Luke today is, is called A God-Sized Dream. A matter of fact, we got a graphic because I got, I got fancy and I, I made a graphic. So, um, but I love this picture, by the way. Uh, I found this on, there's a Christian stock image site that we have a subscription to as a church. And, and I found this image and, and it just captured it for me. This, this woman looking across this canyon and this, this vast expanse, and it's bigger than her, right? And she's, she's holding a camera, and I love that too. It's like, like she's looking for the perfect shot to capture the beauty of this expanse. And I've actually been in situations like this before. I remember the first time I visited the Grand Canyon. Actually, it's the only time so far. Uh, I, I do intend to go back. Um, but uh, we, we went there. We went, in fact, we went to Arizona once on a mission trip uh, helping a church planter get established in the community. And, uh, and while we were on our way back, I think it was, was it on our way back? My mom was there. Was it on the way back or on the way there? We went to the Grand Canyon. I can't remember. Um, uh, it doesn't really matter. We went to the Grand Canyon. And uh, while we were there, I remember looking out across this thing and thinking, wow, Evil Knievel tried to jump that, you know? No, um, actually, uh, it was just like, that thing is so... It's so big. It's so much bigger than the pictures tell you. When you're standing there and you're this little human being standing on the edge of that thing and it's just massive and there's the river flowing through it and it's just so beautiful. It's a big place. In fact, did you know that the Grand Canyon, if you put the Grand Canyon down, uh, down the middle of the island of Britain, it would split the entire island in two. And it would take up about a third of the land area. That's amazing to think about of an entire country. That's how big the Grand Canyon is. It tells you something, too, about how large this, our country is, how big and vast this place is, how much beauty there is here. And yet, um, sometimes I think we, think we, we, we look at what God has said he's going to do, what God, is, what God has laid out as far as his plan to save the world. And, and I think sometimes our vision is too small. We don't have a God-sized dream. And I know this because I struggle with this too, by the way. I'm not, I'm not just 
throwing all of us under the bus and, and leaving myself out. I'm, I'm, I struggle with this too. And so I know that if I, as a pastor, struggle with this, I know that you are all, I know we're all struggling with this. Because there are some days when I find that I don't believe that God's really going to save a lot of people. Because I, I mean, I'm just being honest with you. Because I see that this, the brokenness around me. And I see the skepticism around me. And I see how people are so almost standoffish about the things of God. And sometimes, I'm just going to be honest, I just, I get a little downcast about it. Lord, how are we going to do this? Lord, how are we going to, and how are we going to, how are we going to reach new people? How are we going to grow the church? I, I have days where I, I just am a little downcast about it, and it's not, because I, it's not because God is small. It's because my vision's too small. And I don't believe God at his word. And then I have other days where I wake up and I'm like ready to charge hell with a water pistol. But, but, but we all struggle with that at times, don't we? Don't we? We have moments where our vision's too small, where we, where we look at that neighbor down the street and we see how lost they are and how much they need the gospel, but we're afraid to go share because we think they're just going to reject it anyway. We all have days like that. But we need to have a God-sized dream. You know, like, we need to look out across the expanse of God's dream, His vision, and understand that it is huge. It is an expanse that's what that, that image sort of signifies for us. So today, as we are la- launching this new sermon series, we're going to be in Luke chapter 3. And you may ask, why not Luke chapter 1 and 2? Well, we've, we just came out of the Advent season, and we've talked a lot about the birth of Christ and His coming. So just to summarize for you the first two chapters of Luke, um, God promised that Christ would come into the world. In fact, we've read quite a bit out of Luke chapter 2 over the past couple of weeks. Uh, and uh, so God, Gabriel showed up, told Mary and Joseph what was going to go on. Oh, even before that, I love it. Starts out with Zechariah, right, in the temple, and, and God appears to him and says, you're going to have a son, you old man, you know, because he was. He was an old dude, and he didn't believe it. He was like, God, how am I going to know? Or he said to Gabriel, now how am I? This is so funny to me, when an angel shows up, right? Uh, the angel Gabriel shows up. You're in the temple performing the service, you know, because he was a Levite. He, he, he was on duty at the time. And, uh, and the angel, literal, a literal angel shows up and says, hey, you're going to have a son. And he's like, no, how am I going to know that's actually true? <laughs> I'm sorry, but if an angel shows up, I'm believing it. I'm, you know, now, I may say that, but, uh, but the reality is I'm a man just like him. So I'm just as likely to doubt God just as much as you're just as likely to doubt God. So it's hard for us to judge Zechariah because, again, remember, our dream's too, too small, too. Zechariah's dream, his vision was too small. God was expanding his vision. He says, listen, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm, I'm going to give you a son in your old age. Just like I did for your ancestor, Abraham. And, but, and that your son is going to be the herald of the Messiah. Super cool, right? And, and he says, now, you're, you're not going to be able to talk until he's born because you didn't believe me. So he, he ended up being mute. And, uh, and they knew he saw a vision. But all this happens, you know, Mary, um, the, Gabriel shows up to Mary, says, you're going to carry the Christ and she was a faithful woman. She, she said, all right, Lord, whatever you want to do to me, let it be done. She didn't understand how. She didn't understand what was working in the midst of that. But she just said, God, whatever you want to do. She submitted to God's will. Again, God was expanding her vision, wasn't he? She said, how, how, how is this going to happen to me? I've never been with a man. And, uh, and the Lord 
through Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. It's going to be a miracle. And so her vision grows. Joseph was afraid because, well, I mean, those of us who are adults understand we kind of, if you know how children uh, come into this world and then all of a sudden your fiance is pregnant, you have suspicions, you know, because um, you, you know you, it wasn't you. And, uh, and so Joseph is, he's, he's an honorable man. He says, I'm going to put her away quietly because back then if you were engaged, it was the same legally as being married. So there was a divorce that had to be involved. So Joseph, his vision was too small. He didn't understand that, that, this could be from God until the angel shows up to him and says, this is from God. Okay, Mary, Mary didn't cheat on you. She wasn't running around. You know, she's, she's not, she's, she's not a, a dishonorable woman. In fact, she's incredibly honorable, and she's received this work from the Lord. And, and it's okay to take her as your wife. And, and Joseph, God expanded his vision. He understood that it was bigger than, than what he could see. And you see on and on, we see the same theme happening. And, and, uh, and, and we get the prophets uh, in the temple who proclaim what God had spoken to them over the baby Jesus when he came there to be, to be uh, uh, consecrated and circumcised. And they declared over him, this is the Lord's Christ. And Mary shows up to visit her cousin Elizabeth. And baby John the Baptist, who had was a miracle baby, leaps inside of her at the presence of Christ. And Elizabeth immediately knows, your baby's cooler than mine. You know, she instantly knows, like, like I thought this was really awesome that I had this miracle baby, but what is in you? Like, this is my Lord. She understood that it was her Lord inside of Mary. Incredible. And God expanded their vision again, Right? And then in Luke chapter 3, we get into this thing where John the Baptist, fully grown man, locust and camel hair and all, you know what I mean? Like he, John was like my kind of dude, you know, like John was an early hipster, I'm convinced, okay? Um, uh, he, was, he was an early millennial hipster, okay? Because he literally was wearing camel hair, just like whatever, you know, like um, in our day, it would probably be, you know, bought grungy stuff at the thrift store or whatever, you know, but, but, um, but he, he was just a dude, man. He was just wearing whatever. And, um, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Um, it was organic and everything. Okay. I'm, I'm certain of it. Non-GMO. Okay. Gluten-free. And, uh, he, he was this interesting fella, but he came with a special message and all these things we see that God has a big dream. And in fact, what we're focusing on today, the big dream that we're focusing on today is God's dream that what, was, what has been broken by sin may be restored. We'll get more into that as we progress through this today. But we've heard a lot of big dreams in, in our day, right? We've, we've, people have, have, have expounded on big dreams and shared big dreams. I don't know if there's been any bigger dreams shared in our, in our history as Americans, in the dream shared by Martin Luther King Jr. It's a popular one. We, every year we find ourselves quoting his speech. And his dream was a great dream. It was, it was incredible. He dreamed of a world without racial prejudice. 
right? Where, where like we could all look at each other and say, man, that right there is someone who was created in the image of God. No matter what their skin color was, no matter what their, their country of origin was, that we would just be able to, as humanity, look at each other and say, man, that person bears the mark of the creator. What a great dream. In fact, Dr. King understood something that the prophets of old understood as well. That that kind of harmony, that kind of peace can only come from a God-sized vision. And by the way, a truer and better understanding of the gospel. But I want to tell you that Jesus' dream, God's dream, is even bigger than Dr. King's dream. And, and by the way, Dr. Dr. King's dream will come true in God's dream in a way that we can't even fathom. Because in some way, like when we think of Dr. King's dream, we just think of people getting along on this side of heaven. But God's dream is that there would be one holy nation of people who are restored and delivered from sin forever. This is super cool. Scripture teaches us that, that, that God wants to see the whole world full of the good news about Christ and his, restor- his, his restoration work and then follows from that the good works. And Jesus came because things are not right in this world. Jesus came because he looked across the world and, he, and in fact Isaiah tells us exactly in, in, in Isaiah we're told, Isaiah 59 to be exact, we're told that, that the Lord looked out and he saw how broken the world is and he was not cool with it. He just wasn't okay with it. And the Bible says that he saw there was no one who could intercede. There was no human who could possibly intercede for humanity. And so what, what does Scripture say? It says his own arm, his own arm brought him salvation. Now that's a that's a picture, right? Because God saw it couldn't be done from our own selves, so God himself did it. It was because we lack the one fundamental element which, which could possibly make it work, and that is, that is faith-filled hearts. Now, a faith-filled heart is a heart that's turned towards God. But the natural state of humanity because of our rebellion against God is actually hearts that are turned away from God. So we're no longer hearts of faith. We're hearts of self-centeredness. And faith turns us away from self, and so we struggle with that. We're all separated from God because we believe in ourselves instead of in Him. And yet we have all these books. You walk into the bookstore, the first things you're going to see is like, believe in yourself, man. The most popular Christian book of 2019 was a book that essentially called women to believe in themselves. That kind of makes me sad because the gospel tells us the exact opposite. The gospel says don't believe in yourself. In fact, Jeremiah wrote to us that the heart is deceitful and wicked. Who can understand it? Don't believe in yourself. Believe in Jesus. We're all separated from God. 
This is a sinking ship with no lifeboats. I watched the Titanic documentary this week, okay? I'm scarred right now. Um, I, I, do you guys realize that there's some Australian billionaire who built the Titanic 2? And, uh, oh, it came back. <laughs> some, some Australian billionaire literally has built a Titanic 2 that is an exact replica of the Titanic, except for it has diesel engines, smart guy. You know, I mean, who wants to have a steam engine boat these days? And, uh, and, and, and he, they added an extra deck, but it's an exact replica. And they're going to sail this thing to Liverpool, and they're going to do the exact route from Liverpool to New York. I'm like, I'm not on that boat. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't care if you got all the modern stuff in the world. The last time y'all did that, it went wrong. And, uh, and, the, and the two sister boats of the Titanic also sank. I'm out, you know? Um, now, they, they are smarter. They, they welded the hole instead of riveting it. It just it seems smarter. But still, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of, man, that, that was a bad situation. Can you imagine being in a place like that where you're on a boat, it's going down, and there's not enough room for you on the lifeboats? Or in this case, there's no lifeboat. There's no lifeboat in this sinful world. If we are to be saved, we must be delivered. There is no other hope for anyone in this world. So the good news, then, is that God has set a plan in motion to deliver us. The bad news is that most of us are dreaming too small, and we don't see the beauty of God's plan, and then we also don't see our part in seeing lives saved and the world restored. Today, so, so we're going to look at God's dream over the next few weeks. We're going to dream God's dream. I, I hope, my, my hope for this is that as we explore this topic, that God will expand our vision just like he did for Joseph and for Mary and for Zechariah and Elizabeth. That he'll expand our vision so that we can see what he sees and we'll see the, the plan and why Christ came and then we'll see our part in it. So let's look at the scriptures. It's a good place to start, I think. <laughs> Luke chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3. I'm going to open up my actual paper Bible today. I'm excited because I got this from, you know, with, birthday, with some birthday cash. So anyway, um, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was the tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of uh, Ithuria. And, uh, man, I always forget this guy's name. Trachonitis. Man, guys, come on. If you're going to have a kid, that's a good one. Trachonitis. And uh, Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene. Not in Texas, by the way. That's, uh, um, During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan River, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. There's a couple of really significant things that, we, that we're seeing right here. And the first, the first we see that uh, Luke gives us the context. We want to understand that Luke was, Luke was a smart guy. Luke was a, he was a physician. Really smart guy. And he kind of got in this whole thing because he was a physician and the Apostle Paul had some issues. And so Luke ended up traveling with Paul. And of course, we know that God is sovereign. God knows exactly what he's doing. And God knew that he was going to get this real smart guy to write this gospel 
Uh, and, and, and that happened because he was hanging out with Paul and, and also Peter at times. And so Paul, you know, Luke got the story directly from Paul and Peter, who got the story directly from Jesus, or actually Peter was there for most of it. So, but, but Paul got it directly from Jesus. So, so it's kind of neat that, that this is where this comes from. So we want to understand this is historical. There is historical context here. This is a real story in a real time, in a real place, with real people. It's not just a myth. Some people read the Bible like it's just a collection of stories. Well, no, we're actually given historical context so we understand this is real. This actually happened. And that's what Luke is establishing for us here. And then we we also see this powerful assertion that what John came proclaiming was not from John. In fact, it says he came proclaiming the word of God. So John wasn't working on his own authority. He was working on the authority of God who was putting these words in his mouth and then he was proclaiming a baptism for repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And that's the third part, of course. The basic content, sorry, the basic content of John's ministry and message was really significant. He was calling people to be baptized, washed for repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Now, why is that so significant? Actually, did you know that ceremonial baptism was a pretty common thing in those days? Under, particularly in the second of Judaism, I think we have a short, no worries. Um, I'll try not to do that again. Uh, in the uh, second temple era of Judaism, it was very common for people to be baptized if they wanted to convert from pagan religion to the Jewish religion. It was also common for people, and it was considered a ceremonial washing, by the way, a washing away of your past dirtiness, your uncleanliness, so that you would be purified for the temple. Now, if you were a man, you also had to be circumcised. I won't go into that. That would be a terrible experience as a man. But, um, but anyway, you women got off easy. You just, you just had to be baptized, okay? Um, but... Uh, in, in, but also, if you were a Jewish person who had been living in sin, you might be baptized for repentance, declaring that you're, you're changing your ways and you want to be pure and you're, you're turning away from your sin and back to God. So it was a very significant symbol. So this, this was really nothing new, but John came bringing the ritual baptism and saying, let's, be, let's prepare the way because the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is on his way. You prepare your heart because when he comes, stuff's going to happen. <laughs> All right, so now let's look, at the con- let's look at the message that John proclaimed, okay? Because that's what we're, we're told in, in verse 4. In verse 4, essentially, we see that John proclaimed what the Christ was coming to do. And he does this by quoting the prophet Isaiah. As is written in the book of Isaiah, in the, in the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low and the crooked will be made straight and the rough ways will be, will be made smooth and all humanity will see the salvation of God. Now this is the basic content of what John was proclaiming that the Christ was coming to do. And it's very significant in a lot of ways. 
Because, okay, first, we see that Isaiah got, got this beforehand, right? Isaiah knew beforehand what Christ was going to do and what the, what the herald of the Messiah, John, was going to be proclaiming. So this is an old message that John was now proclaiming in real time. But we see in the prophecy the basic purpose of the ministry of Christ. And this is really significant for us today if we're going to develop a God-sized dream. What did Christ come to do? Well, first we see that Christ came to restore that which has been perverted by sin. Notice he's talking about like unlevel ground, right? He says specifically, every valley will be filled. It's going to be made straight. So that, well, that gives us a picture, right? Because if there's a lot of valleys then trudging through that is very difficult. But if the land is flat, it's easy to walk through. Every valley will be filled, and every mountain and hill will be brought low. Everything that's been perverted and twisted by sin is going to be flattened out. That's what he's saying. It's going to be straight. It's going to be right Every twist and turn is going to be brought back into alignment with the purposes of God the Father. Rough ways will be made smooth. And this is a very important thing. Oh, the crooked will be made straight. We can't forget that. Okay, I know I mentioned it, but the crooked will be made straight. We need to know that because, because we see that there's a lot of crookedness in us as people and in our world. But verse 6 is so significant. All humanity will see the salvation of God. Now, look, this doesn't mean that everyone is going to be saved necessarily. Uh, we can pray for that. We can hope for that. We can share the gospel with everyone, and we can pray that everyone will be saved. But, but what he is saying is that all humanity will at least see it. Whether they repent and believe the gospel or not, they're going to see it. They're gonna, they, they won't be able to miss his glory and his work in this world. Do you know what? This sounds an awful lot to me like something Jesus told us. In his model prayer, remember? One of the things he says, he prays to the Father that it would be on earth as it is in heaven. Now, what this declaration sounds like is what it would look like if that prayer came true. If it was on earth as it is in heaven, all crookedness would be removed. We would be on level ground, and we would be walking with God perfectly. We would know his salvation. We would be walking in him instead of in our own strength. In fact, Christ is the perfect on earth as in heaven man. But it's not just about him being that man. This is important. It's about us being restored to be like that too. Do you realize that this is what we were created to be? Who Christ is as the perfect God man, right? Both God and man, 100%. I don't understand how it all works, but I know... That he's 100% God and 100% man. He's the only one who has a 200% nature in the entire universe. Christ. What I know about Christ is that he came to show us what it looks like to be the man that God created. 
like what Adam would have been like if he had never sinned. What a restored human is going to look like. Christ is our example. And I believe that all of our core longings as humans are actually after that, and we just don't know how to interpret what we want. Whether we realize it or not, this is true. Now, think about it. Humanity, we're striving to somehow perfect ourselves. And that's why we have this desire for money, power, fame, all these things that we desire. You know, we, we, the retirement plan <laughs> that, we, that we think is, I mean, oh, I find, man, if I finally get to retirement, I'll be complete. Um, I, I hear these kinds of things all the time. You know, Beth's in HR. It's all she ever talks about with, with, the, with those people. You know, like, I just want to retire. You know, anyway, um, <laughs> but, but like there's this, this, this American dream that we've latched onto, and so much of it is about our, having a decent life here when God is saying, you need to dream bigger. Because I want you to be restored to, the, to be the person that I actually created you to be, to be like my son Jesus. And that's so much better than just having a piece of comfort on this side of eternity. All of our core longings, if you, if you trace them back to the root, go back to the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve looked at the devil as he was talking to them. And they thought of the Lord and they remembered that God said, you're very good. You don't need anything else but to trust me. And then they heard the devil say, actually, to be good, you need to add this to yourself. You see, that's striving. They started striving in order to complete themselves and what that did is it actually made them incomplete. The thing that they thought would perfect them actually made them incomplete. And the funny thing is, if they would have just remained in God and trusting in God, they would have remained complete. But anytime we start trying to add something to ourselves, so anytime it's God plus something else, all it ever does is spiral us away from God and away from happiness and away from goodness and and well-being. And all of humanity, all of our attempts to try and complete ourselves outside of Christ, that's all we're doing is adding to that mess going further down the rabbit hole. And Christ calls us to restoration. Now how he does that is counterintuitive to the way that most most of us think. Again, most of us think like a self-help book. We think, well, if I just try harder, I'll have it. But trying harder is what got Adam and Eve into a mess. Resting by faith in God is how we find wholeness. And Christ came to restore. Our core longing is not to complete ourselves through trying to make ourselves better or or be more self-righteous or whatever it is. Our core longing is ultimately found up in being restored in Jesus. And that's exactly what John was calling them to. Or at least he was telling them that's what Christ came to do. To make crooked things straight. To fill in the valleys. To bring down the mountains. All the things that have separated us from God and made our lives difficult, he's going to bring back into alignment with the purposes of the Father. Now, 
Um, that's the purpose of Christ's ministry. It's kind of an important thing to know. Because if that's the purpose of Christ's ministry, then, well, it might say something about our purpose. If Jesus said to us in John 20, 21, peace be with you, as the Father sent me into this world, so I am sending you into this world. If, if then our mission is actually to carry on Jesus' mission, then maybe understanding the purpose of Christ's ministry is probably pretty important for us as a church and as individual Christians as well. Because we know that our purpose is tied up with His purpose. Christ said, I've come to seek and save that which is lost. Well, to seek them means that we've got to go find them. There's so many things wrapped up in this that we're going to do the works of Jesus. I don't want to jump too far ahead because that's in another chapter. But anyway, um, so then we want to ask the question, well, well, how would we live if this is actually true? How are we called to live? And he tells us, John tells us in verses 7 through 9, he gives us a pretty good, uh, pretty good rundown of what it looks like to live in light of the coming of Christ. He said, says, John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you offspring of vipers. Man, that is not a great way to draw a crowd. You know what I mean? You offspring of vipers. Like you, essentially saying, you bunch of devils. <laughs> Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Now listen, this is an important word. Therefore produce fruit that proves your repentance. And don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God can raise up children for Abraham from these stones. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. There's a couple important things here. Um, really a lot, but I, we could probably actually do an entire sermon on that one passage. But, um, but let's, just, let's just roll through it here. Two things I want to point out. One is John says that if you really believe these things, you're going to produce fruit that actually proves your repentance. In other words, we don't just come to God saying, Lord, please save me so I can live however I want to live. And, and you'll still accept me when I die. I've heard that from people. Y'all have heard that preached before. And I don't, I'm not happy about that. No, we're called to repent. What does that mean? Repentance means turning away from our sin and our death and turning towards Christ. And you may be like, maybe you're here or you're listening on, on the internet and you're like, what is sin? Listen, it's rebellion against God. It's anything that is in our life that's inconsistent with the ways of God. And in fact, um, Paul gives us a great description in Romans 14. He says, anything that is done apart from faith is sin. So if it's something that we're acting apart from faith in God, and we kind of described that a minute ago, faith is trusting in God instead of trusting in your own ability to make it happen. So if anything that we do that is trusting in our own ability to make it happen is actually coming out of sin and rather than in faith in God, and it's rebellious against Him, we're trusting our own intuition and our own wit rather than in God and His Word. And that is always going to get us into trouble. And I will say that God is not against working hard. And He's not against knowledge. And He's not against all these things. But when they're in the right context. Right? Like I, I like to say the gospel's not against earning, or the gospel's not against striving, but it is against earning. It's okay to try hard as long as you're not trying hard 
in order to earn something, to add something to yourself, or to get something from God, or something like that. It's okay to, it's okay to work hard, but we always want to build on a foundation of grace and not one of works in the law. Now, we just spent six chapters of Galatians talking about that, so if you want to get more into that, go, go back and listen to the sermons in the podcast, but, uh, or, or we can talk later. But, um, but I think we've well established that idea. But, but John is calling people here to live in light of Christ's coming. Now, our fundamental problem as humans, this is important, so catch this. Our fundamental problem as humans is that God made us good, but by our own choices, we have ceased to be inherently good. Because, again, we chose our own way rather than the way of God. We chose that to, instead of trusting God's word that we are good, we chose to strive and to try and earn our own goodness, and that caused us to fall away from God's grace, and that started this whole mess. Literally, the first self-help book is what destroyed humanity. When the devil says, if you just do this, you'll be better. But church, we're going to say it. We've already said it before. We're going to say it again. Anything plus God is always going to equal nothing. So you say Jesus plus something equals nothing. Only Jesus will ever equal something. Faith in Christ and Christ alone. Not Christ and my ability to be better. Or Christ, you know, and whatever else. Christ and whatever makes me happy. That's always going to lead you down the path of Adam and Eve. Instead, God is calling us to just trust in him and his, him alone and his word. As we said earlier, because of sin, we're separated from God. And if we're separated from God, we're separated from everything that is good. Ultimately. And the only reason we have anything that's good at all is because God is gracious and he's kind and he's given us common grace. All right, let's see. We've got to get through. I'm going to get through this last part as quickly as I can because it's important. Uh, verses 10 through 14, he says, The crowds were asking him, What then should we do? John answered, The person who has two tunics must share with the person who has none, and the person who has food must do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and he said to them, uh, and, and they said to him, Teacher, what should we do? He told them, Collect no more than what you are required to do. Then some soldiers also asked, asked him, And for us, what should we do? He told them, Take money from no one by violence or false accusation and be content with your pay. There's a couple things that we see out of this that, that, that I think here John is casting for us a vision of what it would look like if we actually lived in light of Christ's coming. Now think about this for a minute. What would it look like? Well, one, people would be generous and kind. That's true in the kingdom. Now listen, if you're not having to get it all for yourself, in other words, you're not striving to complete yourself, guess what? The core motivation that makes you want to be stingy is gone because you have everything you ever need in the Father. People would be honest. We don't need to lie in the kingdom of God. Why? Because... Because you have everything you need in the Father. You don't need to worm your way into some deal on the side to try and escape something because you're perfectly complete in the Father. People would stop abusing other people. Because, again, we're perfectly complete in the Father. We don't need that. We're not striving to try and complete ourselves. Now, do these things look like the kind of world you'd like to live in? Because... Yeah, I'm feeling it. All right, I'm dreaming this dream, okay? Like, I want to be there. Let's get there, Father. 
This is the kind of world that Christ came to restore this world back to. Okay, because again, our core issue is that instead of believing God, we've believed in ourselves and that we have to do all these things to add to ourselves and we end up abusing other people to get there or we end up lying and cheating and stealing or being stingy and the re- or, or trying, you know, because we're vying for power and we think we've got to get to these certain places and anything that stands in the way is keeping me from being happy. And happiness is our ultimate goal rather than holiness and the glory of God. And the crazy thing is, again, if we were just content in the Father, all these things would be unnecessary for us. And all this strife would be gone. But we're not content in the Father because we think we have to do it another way. All of our attempts to do life our own way rather than God's way can only ever lead to self-centeredness. Now let's look at verses 15 through 17. Here's what he says. While the people were filled with anticipation, they all wondered whether perhaps John would be the Christ. John answered, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clean out the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his storehouse, but the chaff he will burn with the inextinguishable fire. There's a couple things we need to catch out of this. And, and first, John distinguishes himself. He says, I'm not the Christ. In fact, John was a really good man. Jesus said that John was the greatest man ever born of a woman. And here's the greatest man ever born of a woman who says that he's not worthy, that, that he is not even worthy to tie Jesus' shoes. That's something, you know? Um, so he distinguishes himself from Christ. Christ comes to purify us so that we can be worthy to be in God's presence once again. That's important. He aims to put our shattered existence back together. Now remember what we said at the beginning, that God's dream revealed to us in this chapter is restoration of that which has been broken by sin. He wants to start with you and me. He's starting with human souls. Now the day will come when the, when the earth is going to receive its restoration. But make no mistake, God wants to save as many people as he possibly can before then because he wants that world to be populated well. And he wants that new city, that new Jerusalem to be full. But, but, gee, but we, we don't want to miss out on this, that Christ when he comes again, he's coming to clean house. He's going to sift out humanity and the righteous will rise to the top and the unrighteous will fall away. And only those who are in Christ will have their hearts purified by his fire rather than burn up by it. In other words, if you have not been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, right? He died on the cross to save us from our sins. If you haven't been washed in that flow of the blood of Christ, when the fire comes, you're going to burn up and you will not withstand. But if you've been purified in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become his righteousness. If you've been purified by his blood, then when the fire comes, 
you're pure and you're going to make it through, not on the basis of your own merit, but based on your faith in Jesus Christ. See, we're reversing the Garden of Eden because instead of putting our faith in ourselves like Adam and Eve, we're turning our faith back to the Father through Jesus Christ. And he died so that he could unlock the key that allows us to have faith in him yet again. If our souls are dead, the only thing that can raise us up is a miracle resurrection, and that comes by the Holy Spirit's work when he calls us to have faith in Christ. So the last thing that we're going to look at here is verse 21 and 22. Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. This is so cool. Um, And while he was praying, the heavens opened up, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a bodily form like a dove, and the voice came from heaven, You are my one dear Son, and you I take great delight. This is important because we see that God the Father, in this instant, expanded everyone's vision who witnessed this. And he said to them, I want you to dream my dream because this is my son who is going to take away the sins of the world. So catch this. Because Christ has come, the Messiah is here. The ministry of the Messiah is effective now. This is not a future thing anymore. It's effective now. So all these things that we just talked about, the Apostle John, or the the Prophet John said, were going to be realities when the Messiah comes, are reality now. And we as followers of Christ have the opportunity to join God in his mission to restore the entire world through the blood of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Now today we have the Christ candle lit because the presence of Christ is alive in this church and in this world today. And Christ is saving people from their sins now. Christ is restoring our brokenness today. So you may have come into this place and you may be dragging with you some kind of brokenness. You feel like there's a ball and chain attached to your foot and you don't know how to get out of it. Can I tell you the answer today is Christ who came to break the chains and and restore what is uneven in your life so that your life can be in perfect alignment yet again with the Father. And you may look around this world and think, man, this is a messed up place. I have to live here. How can I live a straight life like that? Because if you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and He's washed away your sins with His blood, and He has risen from the dead promising you life, and you have received the Holy Spirit who empowers you to walk in this way. So you can do it. Not because you're great, but because he's great and he came to restore you to your father. That is the dream that we want to dream today. The dream of the restoration of everything that starts with the restoration of our hearts as human beings. So you know who the Christ is. You know what he came to do. You know how he is calling you to live in light of his coming. Now, here's the question. Will you join God in his dream to restore everything, starting with your heart? Are you willing to change everything about your life in order to join him in this? Because understand that if he's making everything straight and he's, he's bending the crooked path back straight, that's going to require for you and me a radical reorientation of our lives so that our lives actually match up with the will of the Father instead of whatever we were trying to forge on our own or whatever the world has expected of us. 
It means a radical reorientation of our lives around the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ and around the King, the person of Jesus, who has come to us and called us. Are you willing to change everything about your life to join him? The honest and true one thing that's gonna, that matters more than anything else in this life, and I want to ask you one final question. What's it going to take for you to do that? Today we're going to have a, a, a moment of response to the gospel. All right, And here's how we're going to do it. I'm not asking anybody to do anything crazy or, um, or, or fancy. You don't like have to run down the aisle and fall on your face down here or anything. Um, you can if you want to. I'm not going to say no. But what we're going to do, I've asked a few people to be prayer partners today. So w- would those of you who have asked to be a prayer partner today just stand up and maybe move? You know, I've got Beth here, Dennis, um, um, Rhonda, my mom, and Rich, Pastor Richard. Um, Paul's going to come. He's going to pick on the guitar a little bit. And, and, uh, and if you would like someone to pray for you or maybe you feel like there's something you need to repent of today, you just need to talk to somebody about it and confess your heart, have somebody pray for you. You can find one of these. And, um, and they'll pray for you. And if you have sickness, um, we'd love to pray for you. We've even got some anointing oil. And uh, it's right here if, if it's needed. I know, um, you know, Kay asked for prayer earlier. I would love to have a couple people lay hands on Kay and pray for her. Um, she can explain her issue. But again, the anointing oil is here. So if somebody would do that, that'd be great. But Paul, if you just want to pick a little bit on the guitar, we're just going to enter into a moment of prayer. And let's just let the Lord deal with our hearts this morning, however we need to be dealt with. And if you need to talk to somebody, find one of these, and they'll gladly pray for you. You've been listening to the New Covenant Fellowship Sermon Podcast. If God spoke to you, or if you'd like us to pray for you, you can email Pastor Nick directly at nick at newcovenantokc.org. If you'd like more information about our church, you may visit us on the web at newcovenantofc.org. We can't wait to hear from you.